turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we join senior Pastor Will Ramirez in a study of the Book of Numbers. God had preserved and blessed the children of Israel, giving them victory over the Amorite territories around. Balak, one of the Moabite kings, grew terrified at the thought of Israel going to war with his people. He sought the help of a soothsayer named Balaam to curse God's people. God told Balaam not to go with Balak and the Moabites, for the Israelites could not be cursed. Balaam told this to Balak, but Balak would not listen. Balak thought he could appease God by making seven altars and offering rams and goats. God used Balaam to pronounce three blessings on the children of Israel and to warn Balak on several occasions that continuing his endeavor to curse Israel would result in Balak's own destruction. We continue to see God speaking through Balaam as we join Pastor Will in Numbers chapter 24, verse 3. Back in Numbers 24, verse 3. And here we get to blessing number three upon Israel. Balaam, he says to Balak, he took up his parable and he said, remember parable just means his oracle, his divine speech. And he said, talks about himself first, Balaam, the son of Beor has said, and the man whose eyes are open has said, he has said, which has heard the words of God, which saw the vision of the almighty falling. If you have a King James, it says into a trance, but that is not in the original. I don't know why they put that there. It does not mean that at all. It just means falling, but having his eyes opened. Balaam here is referencing his experience with the donkey. He mentions here where his eyes were opened. The only other time that phrase is used where his eyes are opened is in Numbers 22, verse 31, where it says, and God opened his eyes and he could see the angel there with the sword ready to take him out that the donkey had been trying to avoid. That's Numbers 22, 31. Balaam is clearly referencing here that experience. What's interesting is he says, in that experience, he saw the Almighty. Who did he see in that experience? The angel of the Lord, right? Is it possible that this angel of the Lord was not just any angel of the Lord, but as we know, Jesus is sometimes referred to in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord. Is it possible? Well, let's turn over to Numbers 22 real quick and just rehash this scenario. I think you'll find some interesting things. I'm not telling you what it means, but I just want to throw some things out there. Numbers 22 Verse 31, then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way and his sword drawn in his hand and he bowed down his head and fell flat on his face. Over here in Numbers 24 where he says falling and King James says into a trance, which is not in the original, the word falling there means to prostrate oneself, to bow down in worship or admiration. That's what he's doing here. He sees the angel and he bows down. Now, what are normally the first words out of an angel when a person bows down to them? Get up. You're going to get me in trouble. There is only one you worship, and that's God. Does this angel say that? Nope. The angel leaves him there bowing down, 
And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Why have you smitten your donkey these three times? Behold, I went out to withstand you because your way is perverse before me. And your donkey saw me and turned me from you these three times. Now, unless she had turned from me, surely now I had also slain you and saved her alive. Now, Balaam said unto the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I knew not that you stood in the way against me. Now, therefore, if it displease you, I will go back. I'll go back home. But the angel of the Lord said unto Balaam, go with the men, but only the word that who shall speak unto you? I shall speak unto you that you shall speak. When you notice the fact that the angel doesn't tell Balaam to get up and also that the personal pronouns that are used there that can only refer to God, it's very possible that this was the Lord Jesus himself in a pre-incarnate way. Just a thought, but it makes sense when he says here that he saw a vision of the Almighty falling down but having his eyes opened. I think it makes most sense if we understand it that way. What's interesting is Balaam relates this experience. That's similar to another experience that an unbeliever had in his life. Do you remember a guy named Saul of Tarsus? And what happened to him on the road? On his destination to do another deed, he falls down on his face because the Lord stops him and meets with him. He says, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus whom you persecute. It's been hard for you to kick against the goads, hasn't it? It's not been an easy last few months, has it, Paul? Or Saul at that time. When you consider those two experiences, there is one big difference, isn't there? Saul follows the Lord, Balaam follows his own way. What is the lesson there? Again, I think that shows us very clearly that people wouldn't believe if God revealed himself in the sky because he did to two people and we had two very different responses. One submitted themselves to the Lord and one just kept his own way and did what he was still doing. So the next time you think and go, well, God, if you just show yourself, I'll obey you. That's not the way it works. It's, Lord, I'll obey you and I'll trust you. And then God tends to show himself. If that isn't all the proof we need, the entire tribulation period will be God revealing himself literally in the sky. And what does the Bible say men will do? They will shake their fists at him and curse him. It doesn't fly. It doesn't work that way. What does the man who saw what so many wish they could see have to say about Israel? Well, verse five, what is he seeing when he sees them? He looks at them. He says, how goodly or how beautiful, how amazing are your tents? He says, O Jacob, and your tabernacles, O Israel, as the valleys there are they spread forth, as gardens by the riverside, as the trees of lin aloes, which the Lord has planted, and as cedar trees beside the waters. The difference between tents and tabernacles, one are meeting pavilions where they would all meet in big groups, and then, of course, their tents are their personal homes at this time. He says, you know, I look at all of them, and they're just awesome. He says, you're spread out there like the valleys. Literally means the wadis, and the wadis were everywhere in that region. If you go to Israel with us, when we come down the Jordan Valley and we're coming to the Dead Sea, as we come driving through there, all you're going to see is every two seconds you look over is wadi after wadi after wadi cut into the mountains. That's just how it is. And that's what he says. Israel's just spread everywhere like the wadis. He says they are like like a garden by the riverside. They're just flourishing as the trees of lin aloes. This is the Middle Eastern ice plant, which is called that because it captures water pockets in its leaves. You know, it was something cherished in, a, in an arid area like that. You know, if you were traveling, you'd go find one of those trees and you could get water. And so the, that's what Israel's like. They just have so much potential stored up in them. They're in the perfect place to experience all God has for them. 
And so verse seven, this is what God will do. He has set them up for success and he shall pour the water out of his buckets and his seed shall be in many waters and his king shall be higher than Agag and his kingdom shall be exalted. Israel, they're gonna spread from here to other places and they're gonna be victorious against anyone who fights him. So much so that they will be more influential in that region than Agag. Agag is an interesting name because we come across it a few times in the Old Testament. We're gonna see it later on. We'll see it when Saul is commissioned to fight the Amalekites and their king's name is Agag. You say, wait a second, all the kings have the same name? Yes and no. Can you think of another ruler in that region who had the same name all the time? Pharaoh, right? His name wasn't Pharaoh. They had real names, but Pharaoh was a title and they all took that title upon them. Same thing as Caesar later would be to Rome. So the idea here is Agag is the title taken by the ruler of the Amalekites. God mentions them here because they were considered the fiercest and most brutal and most dirty warriors in the region. They didn't play fair. They didn't mess around. If you got in a fight with them, you better be prepared to fight to the death because that's just how they were. But God's going to make them higher than the Amalekites and his kingdom shall be exalted. It goes on, for God brought him forth out of Egypt and he has, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. Remember, I mentioned last week, it's the horns of an aurochs, a big, huge, extinct now, but these big, huge bulls. He has, as it were, the horns of an aurochs. So he's gonna eat up the nations as enemies and shall break their bones and pierce them through with his arrows. So as Balaam's saying this, in light of all how God's blessed Israel and no one could stop them, why would anyone oppose them? A better question for us might be, Why would any of us ever oppose the Lord? Why would Balak oppose the Lord and his people when God has no plans to do him harm? It's almost like this is a hint, hint, Moab, you know? Why why would you mess with someone that God has blessed like this? And yet that's exactly what Balak has done. And so in verse nine, the last part of this blessing, God warns him again. He says, he, Israel, couched, he lay down as a lion and as a great lion. Who shall stir him up? Blessed is he that blesses thee and curses is he that curses thee. God gives Balak so many chances to repent, which means what eventually happens to Moab later on in Numbers is not God's fault at all. Now, when it says he couched, it means he slumped down to rest. Israel's done. Israel isn't pursuing war with anybody right now, certainly not Moab. So who shall stir him up? The word stir him up means to incite or cause feelings of hostility. Why are you gonna poke the bear, man? Why mess with Israel, Balak? They have no qualm with you. And so Balaam closes with the blessing that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, and God gave to Jacob in Genesis 27, 29. Blessed is he that blesses you and cursed is he that curses you. I doubt that Balaam knew he was quoting scripture here. I doubt he even had a clue as a pagan soothsayer. And yet that's exactly what he's doing, which proves that it's God. He doesn't know the Bible. He doesn't know Genesis. Moses is probably in the process of still writing the thing. And yet he quotes it exactly. Blessed are they that bless you. Cursed are they who curse you. Again, that shows us that God never forgets his promises. And isn't that an awesome thing to know? That we can always count on God's promises. It's terrifying if you're on the receiving end of standing against them. Balak, and yet in spite of that, he continues to defy the Lord. Look at verse 10. He's really mad now. And Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam and he smote his hands together. And the word there, smote, actually means he kept on doing it. The idea is he just went, enough, 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 stop speaking. You're done. You're fired. I called you to curse mine enemies and behold, you have altogether blessed them these three times. Therefore, now you flee to your place. You go home. 
I sought to promote you into great honor, but lo, the Lord has kept you back from honor. And so here we see that Balak goes back on his deal with Balaam. Balaam had told him, I can only do what God tells me to do. He says, don't worry, man, I'll pay you a ton. And now Balak's like, I'm not giving you a penny. Get out of here. You might be wondering if Balak's that mad, why don't you just kill him? He's a king, right? Yeah, but you don't do that to pagan soothsayers. That tends to make all the gods angry. So, you know, that's, you know, taboo in that day. You couldn't do that. Even though Balak, he doesn't want to see him anymore, he can't help but leave that parting shot. Listen, buddy, you're not getting paid. I declared to you that I would do this with the word thought there. He says, I thought, I declared that I was going to promote you into great honor. But guess what? God has kept all those paydays back from you. Congratulations for doing what God said, buddy. Have a nice trip home. And that's how he leaves him. That's interesting. Because isn't this the same lie that Satan gave to Eve? God's holding out on you. God's keeping things back from you. He's keeping you back from good things. The enemy doesn't change very much. Obeying God is holding you back. You're foolish for obeying him. I would ask you this evening, are you listening to that lie? Are you considering disobeying God because you don't think it'll work out for you? Stop doing that. Because here's the truth. Every forbidden fruit has a very nasty string attached to it. Every piece. While Balaam is doing God's will right now, these words get him in the craw. Now he says to him in verse 12, Balaam said unto Balak, did I not speak also to your messengers, which you send unto me saying that if Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the commandment of the Lord to do either good or bad of my own mind. Now there's a semicolon there, which means, it means you're really going to go back on this? You're not going to pay me? And then he waits. Balak's like, I got nothing to say, buddy. And so Balaam says at the end, but what the Lord says, that's what I'll speak? You're not going to pay me? Because I did what I was supposed to do? All right. And now behold, I will go unto my people. But you've been telling me to come. Now you come here because I'm not done yet. And I'm going to advertise you what this people shall do to your people in the latter days. Well, you brought me here to curse them. Guess what, buddy? When you don't pay the soothsayer, you get cursed. And so Balaam, he says this. Now, what's interesting here is that Balaam, he is going to pronounce destruction upon Moab, but God co-ops his own curse. God co-ops this time, and he comes upon him, and he gives one of the most powerful prophecies in the Old Testament. Before we move into that, because we're going to close with that section, this last blessing here. Before we move into that, I do want to point out that this whole transaction between him and Balak is going to gnaw at Balaam later on. So that even though God comes upon him and he utters this amazing prophecy and he can leave with his dignity intact, he still is really upset about not getting paid. And so you're going to have to keep that in mind because when we get to chapter 25, something's going to happen where Balaam does get paid. We won't get into that tonight. Well, verse 14, he says here, Now behold, I go unto my people. I'm going home, but you come here for, and I will advertise you. I'm going to give you some advice or counsel because this is what this people is going to do to your people in the latter days. Now, the word there, latter days, means in the end of days. So this is in the end times. In this final blessing, we're going to see God's plan for Israel go beyond this time of the present all the way to Jesus. Because God's promise to Abraham that he says he's keeping It didn't stop at giving his descendants the land. God promised Abraham that all nations of the earth would be blessed through his seed. So chapter 24, verse 15. We start with a similar opening to this prophecy. And he took up his parable, his oracle, and said, Balaam, the son of Beor, has said, and the man whose eyes are open has said, he has said, which heard the words of God and knew the knowledge of the Most High. In other words, God gave him the supernatural knowledge, who saw the vision of the Almighty falling, but having his eyes open. 
And here it is. Here's what God showed him. Verse 17. I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh, King James says, but not near, not close. I'll see him from a distance. He says, there shall come a star out of Jacob and a scepter shall arise out of Israel and he shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Sheth. Now, this is fascinating because he pronounces that a deliverer is coming. Now, up to this point, we've had a few prophecies. We've had the one that God gave to Eve, that from her seed, there would come one who would crush the serpent's head, right? We have the blessing of Abraham, that through his seed, all nations of the earth shall be blessed. We have the prophecy of Jacob, when he gave to all the tribes, where he said that the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh come. We have seen that all throughout Genesis, and then we've seen pictures of Christ in Exodus and Leviticus. But this is one of the first few prophecies we have of the Messiah, and it's coming from this guy. A promise of a deliverer, a promise of a king. You might get a little confused here because he says, well, I I shall see him, but not now. Oh, so does Balaam get saved? Hold on a second. The verb here is in something in the Hebrew called the jusiv. It's very rare. And when you say it, it means you're expressing a wish. So what Balaam is saying here is, I want to see the Lord. I saw him before. I want to see him again. Remember what I mentioned earlier, if that's Jesus, that's who he's talking about here. I want to see him again. But he says, I can't now. God's not letting me see this Messiah now. He says, I shall behold him. Now, this God shows him that he will see him someday. But what does Balaam make the comment here? But not closely. It'll be from afar. There's no indicator here that Balaam ever gets right with God at all. In fact, it shows that there's always going to be a distance. Now, instead of him seeing Jesus up close, God gives Balaam a vision of the Lord in the far future. Balaam, in referencing him, says, there shall come, so not present now, but there shall come a star. That phrase, that star, in prophecy, it is often used of angels or rulers. The next symbol confirms that it's referring to a ruler. For it says, and a scepter. That is a symbol that's already been used in Genesis to refer to the Messiah. A ruler shall arise out of Israel. So there's going to be this ruler that comes. And what is he going to do? He's going to crush or smash the corners, the borders of Moab. And he's going to destroy all the children of Sheth. Now, Sheth was a Moabite ancestor. In fact, when you look at ancient Egyptian records, they called the people of Moab the children of Sheth. The idea is this deliverer, this Messiah, when he comes in the last days, he is going to wipe out this area. Suffice it to say, if you look at, I think it's Isaiah 63, where it describes the place the Messiah will come first when he returns. And it mentions Bozrah, which is in Edom, which is the border of Moab. That's where the Israelites are going to flee to in the fortress city of Petra during the tribulation period when the Antichrist persecutes them. They're going to flee there and that's where Jesus is going to come first to set them free, to rescue them. And of course, it mentions in Isaiah 63, I believe, which says, who is this that comes from Basra with his garments dyed in blood? He's going to crush them, those who are trying to kill his people. So Jesus is going to come back, rescue them, and that's what I believe this is referring to here. And yet it says he's not going to stop with Moab, verse 18. And Edom shall become his possession. Seir also shall be a possession for his enemies, and Israel shall do valiantly. So he's going to rescue them from there. So that's what's going to happen to the Moabites in the far future. Verse 19, again, a reference to the Messiah. For out of Jacob shall come he that shall have dominion, and he shall destroy him that survives of the city. Any surviving Moabites at that time? He's going to take care of them. 
At this point, Balaam leaves the prophecies of Messiah behind and he turns his eyes upon three other nations who have opposed Israel. And the first one is the Amalekites. Verse 20, and when he looked on Amalek, so that's Balaam now, so he's changing thought. He looks out, he's looking at all these nations that are around Israel right now and he sees the Amalekites. And he takes up this prophecy against them. And he says, Amalek was the first of the nations, but his latter end shall be that he perish forever. Now, it's not that he was the first nation to be created. He was the first nation to oppose Israel. Remember, they attacked the elderly and the sick when Israel left Egypt and Israel had to fight a battle against them to chase them off. Well, these guys are so big and bad and the dirty fighters. Guess what? Have you ever met an Amalekite today? Have you ever run anybody and say, hey, where are you from? I'm from Amalek. No, you haven't. And that's because this prophecy has been fulfilled. There are no Amalekites today. The next nation he sees is the nation that hired Balaam together with Moab, the Midianites. And he looked on the Kenites, which is another name for the Midianites, and he took up his parable against them and said, strong is your dwelling place, and you put your nest in a rock. But nevertheless, the Kenites shall be wasted until Asher shall carry you away captive. The word their nest, the Midianites didn't live in nests, but they lived in the mountainous desert region that was east of Moab. Now, what's interesting is he's using the word nest to make a play on words because the word in Hebrew for nest is the word ken. You Kenites, I'm going to come get you where your ken is, he says, and I'm going to take care of you. And who's going to be the agent? He mentions a nation that doesn't even exist right now, not an empire form, the Assyrians, the people of Asher. The Assyrians wouldn't be around for another 400 years. But guess what they did when they came and invaded the Middle East area? They conquered the Midianites and they took them into captivity into their homeland, just like Balaam prophesies here. Now, the third group he mentions, as I said earlier, is an empire that doesn't even exist yet. He turns now to the Assyrians. And this is where Balaam's blown away by what God's showing him. And he took up his parable and said, alas, who shall be alive when God does these things? Balaam knows he's seeing way into the future right now. For he says, ships shall come from the coast of Shittim, from the borders of Cyprus, so from the Mediterranean Sea, and they will afflict Asher. They're going to attack the Assyrians And they shall also afflict Eber, but he also, the people coming in ships, they'll perish forever too. There's so much here. Again, I wish I had like a whole Bible study just to go into this prophecy. But to sum it up, Eber is the ancient name for the Hebrews. So there's going to be a world power that comes in and they're going to destroy the Assyrians and they're also going to persecute God's people. And yet eventually they'll fall too. Assyria won't last, but neither will the people who conquer them. So what's the point that Balaam is making here? God's people, they might be schemed against by people like you, Balak. They might even be persecuted in the future, but they will always remain. They will always stand. Every other kingdom will eventually fall. And what do we know of the truth of that? Is there a nation of Israel today? You bet there is. And it came about in the most unlikely of ways. 2,000 years almost, 1,900 years after they ceased to be a nation. Now they're back in the land and they exist today right before your eyes. Prophecy is fulfilled. I know those of you who know a little about history might be thinking, wait a second, Will. The Babylonians conquered the Assyrians and they didn't come from the Mediterranean Sea. You're right. But remember, he's seeing far into the future. See, the Babylonians, they conquered the Assyrians. The Babylonians were conquered by the Persians who were conquered by the Greeks who were conquered by the Romans. And guess how the Romans invaded the Middle East? They landed ships on the shores of Israel. That's where they began in fulfillment of this. They landed an army by ship on the promised land. 
Balaam saw almost a thousand years forward to what God would do to all those who opposed his people. The Roman Empire is gone. The Assyrian Empire is gone. The Moabites are gone. The Amalekites are gone. The Edomites are gone. And Israel remains. God has been faithful to his promise. Verse 25, Balaam says, I'm done with you, buddy. So Balaam rose up and went and returned to his place. And Balak also, he went his way. As I said earlier, that makes it sound like it's the end of the story, but it's not. At some point in time, when Balaam's on the way home, he goes, aha, I've got an idea. Now, as the worship team comes up and we close out, what's the lesson for us? Let's trust the Lord, right? Let's trust the Lord. Let's take him at his word. Let's heed his warnings. Let's do things his way. Let's throw all our ideas out the window and just follow him. Isn't that what Jesus wanted us to do? He said, if anyone wants to be my disciple, what? Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Let's do that. Amen? Lord, we make that choice today to say we want to follow you. We choose to deny ourselves, our own way of thinking, Lord. There are things in our lives right now that it's very easy for us to look at and to say, yeah, but, but, but I could pull this off. You've got principles in your word that say otherwise. Lord, we choose to take heed to them tonight. And I say, here we are, Lord. We make a choice to deny ourselves. Not my way, Lord, but your way. And so I take up my cross and I decide to follow you. Wherever you lead, even if it looks like it's, it's gonna be nails in my wrists, Lord, we choose to trust you knowing that you're always good, you always keep your promises, and you always see us through to the other side. We give ourselves to you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. God had told Balaam not to go with the Moabites, but Balaam desired a big payday over knowing and obeying God's word. Likewise, Balak sought to curse the children of Israel over and over again. But his attempts were futile because God only blesses his people. Both the selfishness of Balak and Balaam caused them to miss a great opportunity to draw near to God and see why the Israelites were so blessed by being in a relationship with God. Don't follow after selfish gain, vain wealth, or anything the world has to offer. These things are all fleeting. To know God, the great creator of the universe, the one that knows all and sees all and judges accordingly, to see his ways. This is what we were created for. If you have any spiritual or physical need, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.